0: Good morning, jams. It's good to see you today. It's getting lighter out there. You can enjoy that for a few days before they switch the time on us. We'll be back in the dark. I appreciate Chuck Colson, the good job he did last week, and we saw the intensification of of, uh, God's description of the evil judgments on this world as we looked at Revelation chapter 16. If you turn to Revelation 17, what we have here is a reiteration. You remember that uh, a, a Revelation is, is uh, shaped so that we scan the whole scope of history a number of times. It's like a wave crashing on the seashore. It comes up, it, it waxes strong, and then it wanes, and then it comes over again and covers all of history, and then pulls back and starts over again and covers all of history. And each time we do it, we see history from a little bit different perspective. So it's like a diamond with many facets. And when we turn to chapter 17, we have this clear description of the empires of this world, the kings and the rulers, and what's motivating them. And we're going to look at uh, some of the evils that are in this world that you face when you leave this uh, room. Uh, actually, you're facing it right now around those tables, in case you didn't notice. Uh, <laughs> and how, how it is that we engage uh, the evil in this world. And we'll see real clearly what's behind some of the political powers and the human institutions. We'll also see, uh, next week especially, uh, how all of it is doomed. So we'd be very foolish to put our hopes in the things of this world. Well, Let's take a look at the arrogance of the secular city, uh, Revelation chapter 17. Let's read the chapter first of all. Then we're going to break it up and look at its uh, important parts. Revelation 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes and of the Abominations of the Earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life, From the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going through his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Well, the angel said that he was going to straighten this mystery out. And if you're like me, you're saying, I don't know if he did that or not. Let's look at the first two verses and we're going to see this, that that John, once again, is having a heavenly vision. He's hearing from angels from heaven. He's seeing things that are otherworldly. And it's doing something for him in this life. Don't ever forget that all this strange stuff we're looking at, uh, this uh, literary video, as it were, is given us so that we'll live differently in this life. This is the whole purpose of it. So there is a practical application for this weird stuff that we're looking at. Now, let's say, first of all, that when, you, when you're heavenly minded, it reveals the ugliness of worldliness. This woman, this prostitute, this harlot, uh, is representing Babylon, isn't she? And what is Babylon to a first century Christian? The Babylon of their day was Rome. And what is Rome? It is an ungodly and worldly place. And we see the power of worldliness in this woman. We'll examine it for just a few moments. But what heaven does for us, when we get our minds into heaven, we're able to see our own world. We're able to see the beauty that God has made. We're able to see that it is in His image. We're also able to see the distortions in this world because heaven calibrates our thinking. It's just like anything else. If you, in your business, if you're an accountant, you have certain standards and procedures. And when you're aware of gap, then you know when something's out of, out of whack. Because you're aware of the, of the standard. It's like the gold standard. So it's, it's true. Anything that you use, you have to be familiar with the, the measurement, the calibration of what is accurate, what is good and true and beautiful. And then you can recognize what's not good and true and beautiful. And that's what heaven does for us. And if you'll look for just a moment, leave your finger in Revelation 17, but, but look for just a moment in Colossians chapter 3. And when, when Paul is talking about how we live a holy life, would you notice in Colossians 3, the first thing that he mentions, he's got there at the top of the, if you've got an NIV, it actually heads that chapter up with rules for holy living. Okay, what's the first rule for holy living? See what he says. Since then you have been raised with Christ. This is Colossians 3.1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The apostle is saying you must focus your life where Christ is. And He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And we are citizens of heaven, he says in Philippians chapter 3. That's where our citizenship is. That's our nationality, if you will. And we have passports here. We're passing through. But our nationality is heaven. So, you know, if, if you're traveling somewhere else in this world, people probably in that country recognize you as an American. You speak English. You're arrogant. <laughs> you're loud. You know, Everybody recognizes the Americans. And your citizenship is here, even though you're in some other part of the world. Well, if... If uh, our citizenship is in heaven, then people will recognize us as belonging to another, another world. And that's exactly the way it is. If you want to live a holy life, you must see yourself as you are. Uh, you are a holy citizen of a holy nation living in an unholy world and being kept holy in it. So the Apostle Paul here is saying in Colossians 3, that's the way we live this life. It's a heavenly mindedness that's absolutely essential to live a fruitful life in this world. And furthermore, he says in verse 3 there, that this is our state. We basically are cryptic in this world. He says, you have died and your life is now hidden. The word is the same word from which we get cryptic. It's it's hidden in God. People don't completely understand our identity because we're cryptically heavenly citizens. But he says, one day Christ is coming, and you see this in verse 4, when He comes, who is your life, You will appear. And the word is apocalyptic, from which we get the word revelation. You will be revealed. When Christ comes back, you're fully revealed. And you will be known for who you are in toto. That's the Christian mindset. That's the Christian life. It is a heavenly life on this earth. Now, back to Revelation 17. So, what John's apocalypse is doing for us is giving us a heavenly perspective on this temporary broken world in which we're living. And When you have a heavenly perspective... The first thing you're going to notice is that worldliness is ugly. Now, what is worldliness? Take a look at 1 John 2.16, or you can just listen to me. John says in his first epistle that worldliness is, first of all, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. What's the flesh? Well, it's not just the, the skin, although there's a connection. It has to do with your fallen nature. And there's, there are desires that come from it. And all these broken desires, it's, and you know, if you know the history of alcoholism, and you can look at almost any person who's who's uh, struggled with alcoholism, some of you in this room, and you know that you can go back, if you've been to AA or any other sort of treatment, you can go back and you can see a line of brokenness in your family. And it's almost always there. In, in over 95% of the cases, it's it's there, where there is a hole in your heart you're trying to fill with something else. It's a sense of affirmation or being loved or something else. It all, almost always stems from a dysfunctional family where there, was, uh, where there was the absence of the kind of affirmation and love that you normally need in a healthy environment. And so that's a desire that comes from your own brokenness, a desire to fill that up with something. Those of you who have had real trouble with your sexual life, where you've either uh, participated as, as a single person in inappropriate relationships sexually... Or even as a married person where you've committed adultery, and you just sometimes you just feel like you just got to have it. I mean, if you read a history of uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, this this most recent one that came out uh, uh, by Rob Dalek uh, just uh, two or three years ago. Uh, if, you, if you read that, you'll see that Kennedy basically would say if he didn't have, have sex with some girl, almost every day he'd get these excruciating headaches. I tried that on my wife. It didn't work a bit. It's uh, <laughs> But but he, he literally, Kennedy, had a sexual addiction. And who knows what? I mean, I'm, I'm no uh, psychologist, but I, I guarantee you, you could go back to that family and you'll find uh, some deprivation in his life of, of love. And he was looking for it, of course, in the wrong way. He was just trying to fill, fill up the hole. And it was the lust of the flesh. He just felt like he had to have it. His whole system was geared toward it. Now, we know that the gospel overcomes these things. But you're still left with the scars. And whatever you struggled with by nature, you'll struggle with in your Christian life. You'll find the gospel is the answer for it. Jesus Christ is the answer for it. But what is worldliness? It is that aching desire of the flesh that is for things that are not honoring to God and honoring to yourself and not helpful to your neighbor. It's the brokenness and the sin and the intense desire of the flesh. Secondly, it's the lust of the eyes. One of these days, our eyes will be for beholding the fullness of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and responding to what we see. Our eyes will be to be filled with Him and to be perfectly satisfied so that our our eyes would desire nothing less than Him and nothing other than Him. But for now, our eyes are broken, just like our flesh. We see things that we think we want. You know how it is. You go through a buffet, (laughs) you know, about two plates full of food. And you get halfway through the first one, and you say, what was I thinking? Well, your eyes were bigger than your stomach. Uh, some of you, the other way around. Uh, but it's all because of the eyes. You see something you want. And, you know, uh, when, I, when I'm doing premarital counseling, and I'm trying to explain to the couple the difference between, when we get to the sex talk, uh, the difference between, and by the way, that's right before the wedding, because, you know, it's hard enough as it is. But we're talking about some of the differences between male and female. And I'll, I'll just ask... Uh, you know what is the the of the five senses? Which one is the one that kind of ignites the man? And of course the man knows every time it's his eyes. You know, so what he sees, you can just feel the girl go, oh no. You know, and of course I'll ask him what what of the senses is it for the woman? He he rarely gets it. You know, it's the ear. And then of course he's going, oh no, you mean you got to talk sex? You got to talk love while you're doing sex? I don't know how to do that. You know. Uh, How do you make love with words? I don't know. The the, the big doofus, you know, sit there, oh, oh. And and most guys go on for 10 years and never get it, you know, that that, uh, the woman wants to be loved verbally. Of course, the woman doesn't get it either. She doesn't realize she's on display that scares the bejabbers out of her. Well, men are built that way and we especially are lustful with our eyes. We can see dollar signs. We can see... Uh, women. We can see all kinds of things that, that then incite desire among us. And really what the scriptures are saying is that's not just loving the world in the right sense of appreciating the handiwork of God. That's one thing. But this is the lust of the eyes and desiring it for yourself for destructive purposes and for purposes that don't honor God. And thirdly, the pride of life. Now that's what John, how John describes What worldliness is, which is the essence of this harlot who's sitting on the beast. She is representing this kind of worldliness that is absolutely destructive. The pride of life. So that as uh, Satan said to the woman in the garden, you can be like God. And the ego, the man's ego, it may be fragile, but it's big. And uh, that's another thing women have to understand. Yes, it's big, but it's very fragile. Be careful with the guy. You can break him. Uh, so anyway, we have this huge ego and it's our pride. And isn't it interesting how so much of what will probably tempt to motivate us today will be either assaults to our pride to which we're reacting or enticements to our pride to which we're allured. It's amazing. If you, if you were to do a spiritual analysis of the decisions you make today and the words that you say today, And if you were to get a percentage on how much of them were motivated by the pride of life, I bet you'd find it's around 75%. It's incredible how the pride of life, seeking to be like God and arrogating to ourselves. This is the arrogance of the secular city. It is arrogating to the city what belongs to heaven. And the pride of life is arrogating to man what belongs to God. That's the problem. We're built... In the image of God, we have reason to acknowledge and appreciate the incredible beauty of a human being, the incredible complexity and wisdom of a human being. But there's a difference between acknowledging how God has made us and arrogating something to ourselves that does not belong to ourselves. We're not the creator, nor are we the sustainer, nor are we the ruler of the earth. But men will act like it when they get the power to do it. As Clinton said, I did it because I could. There is the pride of life. You can do it. You have the power to do it. And therefore you do because there is no constraint on your being a man and God being God. And so when we have the power to take His place, we'll often do it because of the pride of life. Now, that is the essence of worldliness. Now, look what, what John is seeing in this vision. First of all, worldliness will be punished. In verse 1, we are told, he says, He uh, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute. So John is seeing not just a display of worldliness so that we can all see how ugly it is, although that's the first thing we're noticing here. But the outcome is going to be that there's a final punishment for worldliness. And we'll see that especially next week in the next chapter. Secondly, worldliness is whoredom. It is a prostitute. Now, why why does he use the word prostitute? Well, if you'll look in your text, the word the word whore or prostitute is a word from which we get pornography. It's just porn, pornea. And that's the root word for a prostitute and for the sexual immorality or the adultery that's mentioned here in these verses. And John uses it five times in these few verses. He's obviously making a point. Now he's not just talking about this woman being a symbol of sexual immorality, although she is. That's not all that she is. She's a symbol for worldliness. Well, if she's a symbol for worldliness, why did he talk so much about her being a whore using a sexual image? Well, all you have to do, once again, is go back to your Old Testament, which is what John's doing all the time. And over and over again, you'll find that God uses the analogy of prostitution to talk about the abandonment of His people from the covenant with Him. So he will say, you're prostituting yourselves, you're adulterating, you're turning from God as your uh, groom to some other God, and whoring with her is the kind of language that will be used in the Old Testament. And that's all that John is seeing here. That worldliness presents itself to you as a prostitute. And so when you go after worldliness, you're hooking up with, with one that takes you away from your real groom, your real spouse, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, worldliness is not some innocuous, uh, neutral thing. You can go either this way or that way. No, you're making a decision between keeping a faithful covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ or whoring with another. Now, think about what a prostitute does to you. First of all, she's trying to allure you not so that you'll uh, be a better person. Think about it. She's getting into your back pocket. That's her interest. And let me say... Anybody who doesn't have the deepest sympathy for prostitutes has not thought more than about two minutes. And some of you here deal with trying to recover and restore prostitutes in this city. And you know how broken they are. They're almost always abused. They're almost always enslaved to drugs. They are treated unbelievably poorly in these nightclubs around here. And to think that the men of this community go out and observe them And get their kicks by looking at them. And these women are in virtual, spiritual slavery. And uh, it's an absolute tragedy that we see that as a neutral as well. It's one of the most degrading things done in our culture. And we're putting up with it. Some of our sons are going to those places. And some of us may be going to those places. And all it is is being prostituted. Someone getting your money and using something that's destroying another life and getting you to enjoy it and taking your money for it. Now, that's what happens in prostitution. It's destroying lives. It's the exact opposite of what a woman needs from men. And you'll find almost always she was abused by her father sexually or her older brother or some other thing. And she just has, has the lowest self-esteem. She's right next to suicide when you're in these things. This is not pleasurable for a woman. So you're having a, a destructive behavior for a woman. She is observed by other men and their money is taken. And you're getting ripped off. So what happens when you go to a prostitute, you're getting ripped off. Sometimes you get AIDS, you get diseased, you get sick, you get taken advantage of. So the, the analogy that's being used is this, this whole idea of satisfying the lust of your eyes, the lust of your flesh, and your pride satisfying it all of it is completely destructive. It is whoredom. It's prostitution. Thirdly, he says that worldliness actually rules the rulers. If you look in verse 2, With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. So, the kings are especially uh, interested in her services of worldliness. And um, why is it? Why is it that worldliness is so powerful? And why is it that the powerful are so powerfully allured by worldliness? Because... Worldliness harkens back to that ancient temptation that eat of this fruit of the tree and you will be like God. And often you will find that those who ascend to the top of either a city or a state or a country or a business or a community or a church are those whose egos are driving them. To allow themselves to be over others. They want to rule. And they want to be like God. And that's exactly what worldliness is. It is attempting us to be like God. Look at this, for example, in uh, Colossians chapter 3. Go back there just a moment. Uh, And you'll see that as Paul continues to talk about holiness, he says something very interesting about greed. Greed. Colossians 3, 5, as he goes on to discuss holiness. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That would be your flesh. Put to death what belongs to your fallen flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And then look at this next phrase. Which is idolatry. Woe. You see the essence of greed? It is to take on another God. It's idolatry. It's like Moses coming down off the mountain and he hears revelry. And you remember when we studied Exodus? What did he find? That the people were bowing down before a golden calf. And then, of course, they made these stupid excuses. Oh, Moses, we just threw fire, well, golden fire. Look what popped out, said Aaron. Yeah, right. Because nobody, when you're confronted with the idiocy and the ungodliness of idolatry, none of us will admit it. But the fact of the matter is, when we go out there and our ambition is simply to have our numbers be higher than somebody else's numbers, or our ambition is to make our lives secure by the size of that number on the asset side, we have created another God. We have replaced the real God with a false God. And you cannot have both at the same time. You'll electrocute yourself holding those wires. You'll burn up. You cannot have them. God will not allow it. You cannot bow down before that God which has ears but cannot hear, eyes but cannot see, and a mouth that is, but is dumb and cannot speak, and try also to worship the one true and living God. He will not allow it. And so when you go out and that's your life's ambition, you've made a choice to turn away from God. That's exactly what's happened with these rulers. The problem with a ruler, one who's governing, and all of you govern in some way, it's only a matter of degree, and you just simply have to watch out for governing in this world. When you govern, what happens is you begin to think of yourself as the God. And that's the reason then that they are particularly drawn to worldliness. Because worldliness plays right into the game. And so how many assets do you have as opposed to how many assets somebody else has? How many airplanes do you have versus how many airplanes somebody else has? Well, how big is your palace compared to somebody else's palace? And gentlemen, it's happening right here in our culture. You know, you, maybe you've seen this book that was written not too long ago called The Luxury Class. And it's really just a replay of some work that was done in academic circles, economic circles uh, over 100 years ago to show... That when a culture is increasing in its wealth, what happens is the bar continually moves as to what you actually need to get along. It used to be that you needed about 2,000 square feet in your house. Now you need about 4,500 square feet in your house. Same size families, actually a little smaller, but we need more square footage used to need this kind of a vehicle. Now you need this kind of vehicle. And what is regulating your thought about what you need? Does it have to do with a serious look at the Lord, the Great Commission, and the state of the world around you? No. It has to do with what Joe has who works in the other office right across the hall from you. That is what defines need. Where's everybody else going? And you could just drive through the neighborhoods. as you can see Everybody's building these big things because so-and-so else build these big things. And what would it be like if people come to my house? I'd be embarrassed if I didn't have one of these big things. It's the luxury class. So we no more think about managing our resources for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God, we tend to think about managing them for the ruler, myself. That is what worldliness does. It is very ugly. It's a prostitute. And it rules You. Now, you are being told by worldliness how to live your life. Once you give yourself to that God, that God will take rule over you. That prostitute will run and ruin your life. And fourthly, worldliness intoxicates the whole world. Look at 2B. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. And look, the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. That is to say, it's not just the ruling class. It's not just the wealthy class. Now you can go to any economic sector in our culture and you'll find this just pervasive. It was so interesting to uh, preach the gospel in the former Soviet Union right after the wall came down. And I had the privilege of preaching in western Ukraine before they had ever heard the gospel. The only gospel they'd ever heard was the Roman Catholics fighting with, uh, or rather the Ukrainian Catholics fighting with the Ukrainian Orthodox over a, a church building? That was about it. They never heard the gospel of Christ. And for reasons we can understand, when you're in an oppressive communist environment and you're, you're uh, oppressed, the church sometimes tends to, to die down and not really have the zeal of the gospel anymore. But we'd go to places where they'd never heard that you could put your trust in Jesus Christ. And have a living relationship, personal relationship with him and know that you're going to heaven. And the people were just clamoring for Bibles, for the gospel. Go back in a few years and we talk now to our Ukrainian partners and, well, that's, that's old stuff. Now people are interested in TV sets and you know, CD players and DVD players. And The West has rolled in. And when the West rolls in, and the luxury class rolls in, guess what happens? Worldliness begins... To erode our spiritual interests, and no matter how these how wealthy you are or they are, it intoxicates the whole world. And so it's not ju- it's not just the upper economic classes. Now even the poor are intoxicated with a desire for more things. My observation is it doesn't matter how much money you have; it's just what you don't have in your own mind that matters. Well, let's look at the next four verses, and we're going to see this heaven reveals something else: the evil of worldliness. First of all, notice who's behind it. She is supported by the devil in verse 3. <coughs> uh, the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. Why a desert? Because in the desert you can see more clearly. That's the reason Jesus went into the desert. Uh, we, we're in Lent right now. What's it about? Going into the desert. Getting a new perspective. That's the reason you need to get away from your work every once in a while. You need to get away. You need to be by yourself. You need to take a whole day. Just go pray and listen to the Lord. Read the Read the book. Read the Bible. Spend some time alone with him. Get in the desert. you begin to see things differently. Some of you may want to fast next Friday. Um, and just do without food. Do without business. Do without the things that you normally do in this world. And just pull away and get in the desert spiritually. And you'll see some things differently. That's exactly the reason that John was taken into a desert to see the prostitute. He could see her more clearly in the desert than anywhere else. And you'll see more clearly... What's really driving your life and your relationships, where the dysfunctions are, if you get in the desert, you can see them. That's what he does in verse 3. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, had seven heads and ten horns. That reminds us, of course, of the beast in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. Same thing. Seven heads and ten horns. So, it is the beast that's fueling all of this wickedness and all of this worldliness. That is what we must remember. She is blasphemous. We've seen from Colossians 3.5 that it is idolatry. And First John 2.15 says, If you love the things of this world, you do not love the Father. You cannot love things, mammon. You cannot give your life to the, to the aspiration of simply acquiring more wealth and make that the definition of your life. And also say, well, isn't it great? I can have Jesus too. No, you just made a decision. Jesus displaces that. He is your God. This is no longer your God. This now, this wealth, now serves this God, the one true and living God. It comes into service of God rather than displacing Him. So, she is absolutely blasphemous, has blasphemous names written all over her. But notice, she's alluring. People say, why can't I conquer this worldliness? Why is it that I keep struggling with this sin? Because it's fun. <laughs> because wealth is fun and sex is fun. Yeah? Yeah? And everything else that pertains to worldliness is fun. Uh, leave your finger there in Revelation 17 and turn to Proverbs chapter 9. And here we're going to see the allurements. You'll notice in the beginning of 9, there's a very winsome invitation given to us by wisdom. Uh, Solomon says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She also has also set her table. She has sent out her maids, verse 3, and she calls from the highest point of the city that all who are simple come in here. She says to those who like judgment, Come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. Then look at verse 13. The woman folly is loud. She's undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city. And you notice the parallel? We were just told that wisdom was on the highest point of the city. Took the most prominent place in the city. You've got the church building built right there on the on the hill. And she's she's beckoning everyone who comes by. Come on up the hill, ascend the hill to wisdom. What does folly do? Fix the hill next door, puts her temple right on top of that hill. Come on up to foolishness. Come on up. Look at the parallels. Uh, she puts herself on the very prominent part of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come in here. Same message. Let all of you who are simple and need wisdom, come on in here. She says to those who like judgment. Then look at the difference. Stolen water is sweet. Water tastes better if you don't have to pay for it. The food eaten in secret is delicious. If you can take some things that don't belong to you and eat it in secret and take advantage of other people, it's always, it tastes even better. You know how you say sometimes, honey, it just tastes so much better when you fix it. Sheesh. Yeah, right. And here Folly is saying, oh, it tastes so much better when I steal it for you and just give it to you. It's it, it's so much more fun to take a vacation on cheating on your expense account than actually having to earn the billion dollars. Come on. It's fine. Don't be so foolish. Don't be so square. It's delicious. But little do they know Look at verse 18, that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. She's got some bones down in the basement. Better watch out going into that place. So she is alluring. She has something to sell. Worldliness can sell. It's very alluring. It's very powerful. Your flesh is drawn to it. Your eyes are drawn to it. Your pride is drawn to it. So that that suggests that we're going to have a battle on our hands. But notice how filthy she is. If you look in verses, uh, the last part of verse 4, back to Revelation 17 now, if you look at the last part of verse 4 and verse 5, you'll see that uh, although she, she has gold and precious stones and pearls, and she's really gussied herself up, and she's holding a golden cup in her hand, she looks very prosperous and wealthy. Look at that cup. It's filled with crap, abominable things, and the filth of her adultery. And look at her forehead. Mother of prostitutes. That's who you're loving. That's who you've got a great relationship with if you're if you're worldly. Congratulations. You're making love to the mother of prostitutes. The mother of a house. Whoopee. Wonderful. Boy, you've really come up in this world. She's absolutely filthy with her cup, her title. And then look, she's drunk too. She's not thinking clearly. She's intoxicated herself. She's not not doing even what's in her best interest, much less yours. That's what worldliness is doing to you. It's it's drawing you to that which is the opposite of health. And then let's look at verse 6. We find that she's also violent. She is drunk with what? The blood of the saints. And in John chapter 15, Jesus explains why this is. What does this mean that she's drunk? with the blood of the saints. In John 15, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, also, uh, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So, they're going to treat you, if you're a follower of Christ, the same way they treated him. And worldliness chewed up Jesus in the flesh. He died on a cross because they hated him, because he challenged this world's systems. If you belong to Jesus Christ, and you decide to organize your life according to what honors him, promotes his kingdom, brings him pleasure, builds up and edifies your neighbor, you're going to find a lot of opposition because you're going against the system that everybody else has committed themselves to. And they don't like that. And they hate what you're teaching, what you're standing for, and eventually they hate you. So what you find is all the kingdoms of this world, the great kingdoms of this world, whether it be Egypt, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece or Rome, they all chewed up Christians or shall we say believers because some of them were in the Old Testament period. Most of them were. They all chewed up believers. They all chewed up followers of Jehovah. So don't expect that you're not going to get chewed up too uh, in this world because she is very violent and she's after your destruction. Remember that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come to give you life and give it to the full. Thirdly, heaven reveals the mystery of worldliness. And very quickly, we would just want to look that a worldly power is temporary. In verses 7 and 8, what he's basically saying here is that uh, the inhabitants, this is 8b, the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life and the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast. Because, look at this, the very end of verse 8, he once was, now is not, and yet will come. That is simply say, he once had full reign with the incarnation and the crucifixion. Remember, Satan is bound. We'll see that again in chapter 20. There's a binding of Satan that comes in the first advent of Christ. So that he's restrained. He can't do all that he did before. He can no longer deceive all the nations. That's the reason that the church has been planted for 2,000 years all over the world. That's the reason that the number of hidden peoples, those who don't have a Christian witness in their in their Culture are continuing rapidly to decline so that that we're making huge headway even in the past 25 or 30 years in reaching all the world for Jesus Christ. Why? Because Satan is bound. He can no longer deceive all the nations. And yet, what we've seen in Revelation is that there are moments, and particularly it seems at the end, when there's an unleashing of Satan to some degree. In other words, an intensification of his behavior. Whether it's uh, as he punishes those who are wicked or if God Himself is judging through Him. So He once was, is not now, and will be again. You see the the pattern there with Satan. So, worldly power is temporary. It it once had full power. It's greatly diminished now and it will have one last gasp. Worldly rulers are ephemeral. In verses 9-11, through you have a discussion about the seven heads, which are the seven hills on which the woman sits. Everybody knows Rome is built on seven hills. Seems clearly there's an allusion there to the power of the Roman Empire. But even beyond Rome, it's an allusion to all power. Seven is the word for perfect, the number for perfection. Seven hills, hills are places of power and influence. So full power. Rome was built on seven hills. It was a fully powerful empire, and so that empire will uh, certainly be represented by the seven heads of the beast. Uh, they also are seven kings, and people have speculated about these seven kings going back to Julius Caesar and counting up and so on. But there are many different theories, and none of them seem to fit perfectly. Five have fallen; one is, the other has not yet come. Some have said what he's saying is that five of those Roman uh, emperors have fallen. They're in the sixth one now, and the seventh one is yet to come. Uh, I really think he's dealing with symbols again and simply saying his history has had its five rulers. Whether you say Egypt, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and we're in the sixth one, and the seventh one is yet to come. I think he's simply saying we're toward the end of the time. And then uh, you have the beast who once was, now is not, is, in, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. So you can see that what John is seeing is that we're in the process of various kings rising up with power, with worldliness as their goal, And they're passing away. They are ephemeral. Then in verses 12 through 14, this dramatic statement the Lamb and his followers will triumph. That is, they will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them. Now look at this. In verses 12 and 13, the first part of this is the kings will ally with Satan. The ten horns, verse 12, that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. Now, who are these ten horns? (laughs) Once again, lots of speculation about who these ten horns are. Ten kings of some sort. Some say, well, this must be the European uh, Union. Well, I I, I really don't think so. I don't think that's what John had in his mind. I don't think that would have helped first, first century Christians very much. Who are the ten kings? It's just all the kings that come along. All the kings that are spread around the world. Once again, ten is a number for perfection or fullness and completeness. So, all just saying universally, all the kings. What is their one purpose? Their one purpose is worldliness, to arrogate to themselves what belongs to God. And they do it by selling their souls out to the beast himself. So, they're in alliance with the evil one. And secondly, verse 14, the Lamb will defeat the kings. Look at this. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. Look at this. (coughs) Look at the analogy. (coughs) You have these powerful horns which represent strength, military might, economic might, political power. And who's defeating them? A little sheep. A lamb. Are you kidding me? You see the irony? We've, we've heard it so many times in our lives, we don't, we, we don't see the contrast anymore. But John is saying, look at this. A lamb defeats them. Imagine that. A lamb can't defeat anybody. A lamb is a little scaredy cat. What can a lamb do? Well, this lamb happens to be king of kings and lord of lords, and he will defeat all of the worldliness, all of the rulers of this world who have sold themselves out to the prostitute, all that opposes God. And notice secondly, so will the followers in 14B, and with him will be His called, chosen, faithful followers. Gentlemen, when you represent the Lord Jesus Christ, when you stand for Him, when you believe His word, when you build your life on faith in His word, when you proclaim His word, when you testify to what He has done for you, you are powerful. You bring down thrones and kingdoms and rulers. And by your blood, even when you're sacrificed in death, you establish the kingdom of God, which is taking over all the kingdoms of this world. That's what John is seeing in his heavenly vision. That we win in the end through not through swords loud clashing and stir of uh, and the roll of stirring drums, but through deeds of love and mercy. His heavenly kingdom comes, as we sang a moment ago, through the proclamation of the gospel and through the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This worldliness, this prostitute, this whore is completely defeated. Well, that's what John is saying in the vision. And that's, that's what we need to hear today. That we are not involved in some futile attempt to be good and to be chewed up and to lose in the end. Well, we may want to be good, but it's because we're on the side of the good lamb who is the triumphant lion, who's taken over this world and all of its kingdoms and this universe and we're going to plan to be on the right side. And we're going to end up winning in the end. Lastly, that heaven reveals the destruction of worldliness. In verse 15, she has great influence for evil, as you see. The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. She's sitting over the entire world. doesn't matter whether it's Hindu world, Buddhist world, Confucianist world, Muslim world, Judaistic world, Christian world. She's ruling over The prostitute is ruling over the rulers of this world. Look at all of them. They all eventually will will become corrupted because they give themselves to it, to their flesh. But look at verses 16 and 17. Ultimately, the beast himself turns on the whore and completely devastates and destroys her. He's using worldliness to destroy people And eventually, he will get the prostitute himself. All those who have exalted themselves. All those who have boasted of their self-vaunted accomplishments. All those who have acquired great wealth and made it their God. They're going to be chewed up by the evil one. He is alluring them into his house. And no one has examined the dead bones in the basement. That's exactly what he's trying to do is destroy you. And he's found something in your weak flesh and in your eyes that see things you want, and in your pride that He can tweak, and He's coming to you to absolutely burn your life up. That's exactly, Even she's destroyed. Evil caves in on itself. And notice in verse uh, 17, it's the plan of God. That's exactly what He's doing. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish His purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. So evil's house will be divided. God has planned it that way. To judge the world. Lastly, the rich and powerful are simply fools. When they give themselves simply to being rich. And giving themselves simply to be powerful. At the end of the verse, which is this ironic thing. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. This Sad woman, this self-destructive woman, worldliness, is ruling and the rich and the powerful give themselves to her. It's so sad, so tragic that human beings, men, made in the image of God, meant for glory, destined for greatness, destined for fellowship with God are taking this cheap substitute that looks so wealthy and looks so great, looks so powerful, looks so satisfying. And you can, you can take the rich people of the world. Uh, John D. Rockefeller says he made many millions and he said none of them made me happy. John Jacob Astor said I'm the, I'm the most miserable man on the face of the earth. Uh, over and over again, you just get the testimonies of people who have made money their gods. And in those honest moments, you'll find that they tell you it doesn't fulfill them. I know it's very tempting to want to be the next experiment to see if we can actually bring happiness. Um, Like Alan Alda once said, he said, you don't have to be rich and famous to be happy, just rich. (laughs) Uh, So we all want to try it out for ourselves. But you must be very careful, mustn't you? Because it's an elixir. It's an intoxicant. And the more you take of it, You won't find the happiness, but you'll find more of a desire to find more happiness through more money. It is an intoxicant that simply leads you down the road to destruction. Okay, lastly, we've got three minutes. So what? First of all, don't be allured. John said you've got to make a choice. So just make the choice today. It's not because simply that worldliness can't make you happy. That's not enough to make a choice on. I mean, why not try that as well as anything else? At least it's a fun game. The reason you make the choice is that Jesus Christ does satisfy the soul. And when you're make, when you experimenting over here, you have left the real God. You've left the one who is the lover of your soul. And the one who can satisfy you regardless of your worldly possessions. And whether your ego is being fed or not. And whether your sex life is going just the way you want it to or not. You've got the one who can satisfy. And when you're chasing after this, you're not chasing after him. So he says, you cannot Love both God and mammon. For, he says, Jesus says, you will either love the one and despise the other, or you'll give yourself to one and, and devote yourself to one and not the other. So they're, they're opposites. Secondly, don't fall asleep. So don't be allured by worldliness, and also don't just simply pull out. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul speaks of the word of God and its power, and he says this. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Does that sound like a pacifist? Does it sound like somebody who's just letting things roll, just trying to stay out of trouble? Now, here's a man who's engaging his world. There are two mistakes that are commonly made. One is pietism and the other is activism. Pietism is simply saying I'm going to remove myself to my monastery. Now, I'm all for monasteries that people are going there aggressively to pray, to engage the battle. And and those who are praying in monasteries who are engaging the battle, more power to them. We need people who are devoting themselves to the real weapon of prayer. Great. But going into a monastery to get away from the temptations of this world, you simply disobeyed the gospel. Because Jesus said in his high prayer, in his high priestly prayer to his Father, Father, I don't mean for you to take them out of this world. He's praying for us to be kept holy in this world and to serve as lamb among the lambs, among the lions, as among the wolves. So it's not Pietism, just pulling away from the world. Neither is it activism to go in there and just simply think by politics and money and military, I'm going to change this world. No, it's going to be on the other hand a prayerful engagement. That's the answer. We're depending upon the Lord. We're asking for His help. We realize He has the resources and the power to do all things. We're not trusting ultimately in our own finances or our own security physically or our own strength or our own abilities. We're depending upon Him, but we go and engage this world in every discipline. And the problem in the medical field is young doctors Young nurses need to be able to see physicians who have figured out the difference it means to be a Christian in that workplace and who have developed what Harry Blameyers used to call a field of discourse. So there's a language that makes sense to Christians. What we need in in the legal field are lawyers who understand philosophically, theologically, principially, what difference it makes to be a Christian as a lawyer. How do you think as a lawyer? What are the ethics of a lawyer? What we need in the business realm are men and women who will establish not only good examples, but who have fought through how a Christian not only survives, but abounds and transforms the business world. Today is St. Patrick's Day. He died 1,544 years ago. What did St. Patrick do? As a teenager, he was taken captive by Irish pirates and abused. He got out of there, got back to France, joined a monastery, had a dream. Go back to Ireland. What? Go back to Ireland and proclaim the gospel to the Druids. He obeyed that dream against the will of his parents. And after years, he ends up starting his ministry in Ireland at the age of 43. And he proclaims the gospel. He is threatened. He is imprisoned. The Druids do not deal with him very nicely. But after those years of ministry, he dies at 74 years of age. He has led 120,000 people to Christ and planted 300 churches because he decided he wasn't just going to withdraw from the pain. He was going to engage the nation. And because he engaged the nation of Ireland, there were missionaries that went from Ireland. This is now in the 5th century A.D. Missionaries from Ireland that went all over continental Europe and spread the gospel. And in some sense, it saved Western civilization because one man got the vision... For taking the gospel and transforming his world however he could. That's what it means for us to go into the world. Not to be allured and, and taken by it so that we now, we, we're the whorehoppers, but we go and we challenge the prostitution of the world. We go and we challenge the worldliness of the world by setting the example and knowing clearly how we're supposed to live our lives as Christians. And you know what? That is powerful. That demolishes strongholds. That changes businesses and law firms and hospitals. That changes cities and nations and worlds. When men give themselves to the eternal gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the old whore comes off the beast. And you can begin to see the power of the eternal truth taking place in your life and your place of service today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel, that it is powerful. It does bring down strongholds and it brings down the prostitution of worldliness in our lives around us. And God, we pray that You'll help us not only to rein in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, but Lord, help us to let go with You today, to love You, to ask You to take over our lives, to rule over us and to make us Your soldiers in the world today. And Lord, may we have the pleasure of seeing the beginnings of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in this life. For we pray in His everlasting name. Amen. God bless you.